What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Martin Lloyd-Jones had said that he didn't preach on the book of Romans until he felt that he understood Romans chapter 6. And it took a number of years until he felt like he had a grasp on what he thought was the most glorious chapter in the book of Romans, but that he didn't feel like he had a good knowledge of it. And when he finally felt that he gained a knowledge of Romans chapter 6, then he began preaching a series on Romans that lasted for 14 years, preaching on the book of Romans. But now we're just approaching this really wonderful chapter. And I have to say that to some extent, this was my conviction as well. I wasn't going to approach Romans until I understood this passage. And it wasn't until, in my mind, but a few years ago, that I, I, I finally felt like I, I had a clear understanding of the promise and the truth that's here before us. I may be presuming upon myself and thinking that. There are things I know I'm not entirely understanding, but still, this is a glorious chapter. And it begins to unleash promise to us, not only of what God does for us in saving us and delivering us from the penalty of sin, but what God now does and works to save us from the power of sin. How His salvation continues to work itself out progressively through our lives. So as we're looking at this passage and we're having introduced this passage to us, we see that it begins with two questions that are being asked. And these two questions are the, really being asked from two different vantage points. It's as if there's two different individuals or two different parties that are asking these questions. And the second question is really somewhat of a rhetorical answer to the first question. But there are two parties really that we might identify here. And the question that I want you to ask yourself as you're looking at this passage is which of these two questions are you asking? Which of these two questions commonly comes up in your own life? Which is the way in which you engage temptation and trials and difficulties? How do you calculate that? And what's the numbers that you run through your head as you work through and you calculate what your response is going to be? Is it the first question or is it this, the second question that's being asked here? Because, well, that's rather important. That's going to be rather telling about where you are in the state of your, state of your life and the standing that you have or whether you have a standing or not in Jesus Christ. You'll remember that Paul is presenting the gospel to us in the book of Romans. His great intent is to make known to those that he's coming to the gospel that he's preached in all the other places in Europe and also the gospel he shares. He's wanting to share with them and minister to them and then through them the gospel that he wants to minister to those that they're in association with. And so Paul has declared in Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 in the very beginning of the passage, he says that he's a slave or servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in Romans 1, 16 and 17, he declares that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Just prior to that, Paul has said that he's longing to come to these individuals that he might minister this gospel to them and through them bear fruit. See others come to Christ as well. As Paul writes his letter, what we've seen is that he's writing it in a certain style. Paul is in a sense writing it through a series of imagined conversations. You ever done that? You know, where you imagine the conversation you're going to have with an individual or oftentimes we imagine it after the conversation took place and it didn't go very well, right? And then you think, I should have said this and I should have said that. But Paul is getting ahead of the game. He is already thinking and exploring how he's going to express these truths to individuals. And 
Let me just suggest to you, by the way, this is a very productive way and valuable way to meditate on God's word. Have conversations with yourself. Preach sermons to yourself. Think of your own objections and then find the answer in God's word. Have conversations with other individuals. Imagine them and set them forward and put forward your arguments. Just make them and find your arguments and your responses from what God has revealed and what God has made known in his word. And you'll find it's good for you. It's a good way to think and process. Paul is writing his letter in that manner. It's called a diatribe. It's this imagined conversation. And in this diatribe, he's not just speaking to one individual. On some occasions, it seems like Paul is addressing the idolater. On other occasions, Paul seems to be addressing more of the Greek moralist. On other occasions, he's pivoting and he's addressing the Jewish religionist legalist and he's talking to them. And then on some occasions, he's turning back to address the church. And there in the church, he's both addressing at times, it seems the emphasis is on the Jew who is in the church that's a believer, but it's still he's communicating to him through his Jewish vantage point of the law. But then on other times, there's also Greeks or Gentiles at the table, and he's turning, he's pivoting to address them and their place and their position, even though they don't have the law. And so here is this ongoing dialogue and conversation that he's having. But in all of it, Paul is seeking to press forward before them the message of the gospel and an application of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what's taking place in our passage and will help us to understand this passage reading right here in light of that message, in the light of that presentation of the gospel. In these two verses, there is a gospel that's been laid out. And so let's put the context for what we are reading now. And Paul has basically said and laid out the gospel something like this. We are all sinners. We are all under the judgment of God. We have all, in one way or another, suppressed in unrighteousness what God is making known of himself and the truth that God is revealing to himself. And our unrighteousness reveals in some a pagan idolatry. But if you think that you're above the judgment that comes upon the idolatrous pagans, you're no better even if you're a moralistic Greek. And you're in no better position even if you're a legalistic and religious Jew. The fact is that all these things and all these strategies that you have do not remove from you the trajectory of sin that is taking you deeper and deeper into depravity and deeper and deeper under God's judgment. The fact is that God has even given a law to you Jews, but he's given that law to you only to make known and reveal to you the extent of your own sin. So that there's none righteous, no, not one. And misery and destruction is all our ways. And none of us truly seek to know or understand God. All of us before the law are guilty. The whole world must be silent before God, recognizing their guilt. And as a result, there is no answer for the sinfulness in your life. And there's no answer for the judgment and death that's coming upon your life in your effort, in your labors, in your moral activities, in your religious activities. There's answer only in one place. And it's found in the atoning sacrifice that God and love has offered up to you through his son, Jesus Christ. It's not in your moral works. It's not in your labor. It's not in the things you've tried to do. You fail and you sin and there's an answer only in one place. The answer is found in the free gift that God gives you through grace and Jesus Christ coming and suffering in your place and dying for your sins even though you were a sinner and even though you were ungodly and even though you were even an enemy with God and under God's judgment, God loved you so much. And now we've come to a passage where Paul has demonstrated that in Adam, everyone has collapsed into this judgment and this condemnation and that it's universal and it is the condition of the whole world. And Paul says, however, this work that Jesus Christ has provided brings such an impact of grace 
and such an interactive life and benefit in the face of all that death that he has the power to and he will one day reverse the whole trajectory of the world and it'll bring a reign of complete righteousness over all of creation and if you can believe that God will do that for all of creation you can believe that he can do that for you you can be assured that regardless of where you find yourself regardless how broken your life is regardless of the sin in your life regardless of the things you've done wrong at this very moment you can trust in a savior who by grace will bring it in abounding fashion to forgive you and cleanse you and transform you now that sounds wonderful but you know what the religionist and the moralist thinks? Well, if you'll take anybody, regardless of what they've done, and he'll transform them in a moment, what was the good of us being so good? What was the good of us working so hard at this? Why did we try to be such good and moral people if it avails us nothing? If the law says if sin abounds so that grace may abound, why didn't we just sin more? So that grace would abound more. And that's the response they've given. They don't like exactly what Paul has said here. They're not happy with the conclusion he's made. And so we come to that first question. Let's look at this first question again. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul is basically getting ahead of the question. I know what you're thinking. And you're thinking, why don't we just continue on sin? Should we do that? Should we do that, he's saying? The gospel is being heard. It's being grappled with by this unbelieving party that Paul imagines himself speaking with. And they have a response. They say, if, if, if you say that we're saved by grace... And if you say that the whole purpose of the law is just to show us that we're sinners, that we can't save ourselves, and that we're simply to believe in God's provision, if you say that the law was given not to only underscore the accounting of our sin so that it may highlight before us the benefits of a free salvation to be received by grace alone, then why don't we just keep on sinning all the more? That this grace and this free gift may be highlighted all the more. In fact, really, even if we're to believe in these things and we're to pitch ourselves towards these things... If the purpose of my being good has no benefit in my life, then why be good at all? Why don't I just continue to highlight God's saving power, having believed in His provision, by just continuing to go on sinning? That's the argument they're making. That's what's going through their head. Let's make some observations. What I want to do this morning is I want to make basically three observations about this first question that's asked, and then three observations about the question, the rhetorical question that's asked in verse 2. But let's look at this Question in verse 1 now, and let's make some observations. And here's the first observation. This question will always rise when you faithfully share the gospel of Jesus Christ with individuals. A gospel that is not of works, a gospel that is not of labor, a gospel that is not about you earning or deserving something, but a gospel that is an expression of something that is freely given to ungodly people, people that are not like God in any way and not seeking to be like God in any way and that is freely given to wretched sinners and freely given to those who are antagonists against God, enemies against God, it takes away a person's ability to say, I had a hand in my own saving. It takes away the ability of a person to say that in a sense, I worked it out. I did this. I made this decision. I chose this way. I made these determinations. I followed this principle and this rule and this law. And when you take away that ability for them to... And by the way, it doesn't matter on whatever you think the chart is of righteousness that you think it's, you're needed to be saved. If you're excluding what God alone can do for you, if you think somehow you can measure up some way, you almost always think you're one step ahead of where the cutoff line is, right? It's, I might be bad, but I'm not as bad as that person. 
I might, you know, I might lie a lot, but I'm honest about my lies, right? Whatever it is, you think somehow you're just ahead of the game, and there is a self-righteousness that gathers around that. And when you say, hey, listen, God saves wretched sinners through nothing they can do of themselves, freely what God gives them, the person thinks, oh, well, wait, what about, what about these moral coins that I've been adding up that I think get me where I need to go? And they... They react to it. They don't like this suggestion. It's, it's an offense to their own self-righteousness. And what they'll do is they'll pivot on you and tell you that your gospel is encouraging lawlessness. It's encouraging immorality. It's, it's not contributing in any way to encouraging at least morality. If a person is saved regardless of their actions or how bad they have behaved in the past, but simply by placing their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, dying for their sins. If, in fact, trying to save yourselves by good works is actually something that interferes with your ability to place your faith in Christ alone for your salvation, then you basically are subverting any kind of influence upon us to be good at all. Why be good if that's the case? You're kind of taking the lever that God has put over us to make us kind of measure up, and you're saying you're removing that leverage on us, and you're just going to have chaos. We'll just do whatever we want. That's the argument they come back with. And by the way, I've had this asked to me numbers of times. I know this is where Paul is at because this has come back at me many times. And oftentimes it's quite strange, the person who's making the argument. Hey, hey, wait a second, I know how you live. I know the choices you're making and you're kind of down on the lower stratosphere of people who are being careful how they live. And all of a sudden you're becoming the refined moralist telling me the application of how we ought to live. And that still pops up in their mind. Because, well, because the gospel is an offense to any iota of self-righteousness that people have in thinking they can earn their salvation by something they have in themselves. Something that they can add to the scale that somehow will gain God's favor and bring them into God's presence. And so just remember, when you preach the gospel as it is to be preached, as a free gift of God's grace alone on those who are completely and totally undeserving and without any strength whatsoever to save themselves, you will always open yourself up to this one attack, that your preaching of the gospel is making room for increased immorality and lawlessness, and you're removing the incentive to be good at all. And if this is not a criticism that your gospel is receiving, then it's very likely that you're not preaching the gospel, but you're preaching a false gospel. Just try harder. Just be a little better. Be a good person. Just get involved. Go to church. Do these. That's not the gospel. Here's a second thing we can see about this question. This question reveals a mentality that approaches morality in a transactional way. This question reveals a mentality that approaches morality in a transactional way. The idea is that if I'm good, I can purchase some benefit from God and reap some value for myself. Morality in this case is a matter of enlightened self-interest, right? And in part, by the way, a person drawing that conclusion may draw that conclusion by just studying the world that they live in. Because we've mentioned this before, that God has not only made this world with physical laws that rule it, but God has also made this world with moral laws that govern it. And when you follow the moral laws, living in this created world, and you obey certain moral laws... Instead of moving against the grain of what God has made, you start moving with it, and life gets better, and life improves for you. In other words, if you put into your life the fires of selfishness and immediate gratification, 
you'll end up living in a landscape scorched by your own sinfulness and your own selfishness. But if instead you plant in the world you live, in the community you live, goodness and kindness and seeking the advantage of others and not just yourself alone, you generally cultivate around yourself a fruitful and a beneficial life. So a person calculates that and thinks that, well, what works with creation also works with creator. But what works with creation doesn't work with the creator. You can't somehow put some input in before the creator and the creator then says, now I've got to be good to these people because they've done such a good job here. You can't purchase a return from the creator in order to get benefit for your life. And the reason is this, God will be no man's debtor. God can't receive anything from you that he doesn't have. God's not out there begging for, looking for, bartering with you. He's not a businessman that's engaging a trade with you. God is a holy and just God who has laws and viable laws that stand and govern over all things. God is not someone who receives something from you and gives something in return. God is just a God who gives. God is a God who gives every good and perfect gift. God is a God of grace. God is a God of mercy. These are things that are undeserved and unmerited or not attained or not acquired or not bought. God will owe you nothing. You are never in a situation where you can say, you know, I did this for you and I did that and I met this requirement and I've been good and I've collected these moral merit coins and now God, you owe me favor. I've gained a little purchase on eternity and you owe it to me, now pay up. No, certainly not. That's not how God is. So what works in creation is not how it works with the Creator. And this idea that my moral activity, my behavior is just really ultimately a little bit of enlightened self-interest, angling for my own benefit, is exposed before God. It's a selfishness that has to be overcome. Here's the third thing about this question. This question reveals also a failure in those who try to morally transact with God to recognize the depth of sin and its impact on their own lives. Most individuals who ask the question, then why be good at all, as I mentioned before, actually are just thinking, why be a little bit better than everybody else that I've been? Because they can't admit to, they would never, you're not all good. You've got some good, you've got so bad, they're just saying, I'm good enough. But they fail to recognize the whole nature of the sin that has come upon their life and is in their life. They think they've failed in some measure, but that their sin is not insurmountable. That if only they could show that they, to God or to others, that they're periodically putting forward a good effort. It should be enough. And they've yet to be able to trace the deep, hidden depth and defilement that sin has brought upon their life. They don't understand the complete moral bankruptcy that sin has brought into their life. They don't understand or comprehend what Isaiah proclaimed, which is that all our righteousness is like filthy rags. They haven't been willing to confront and meet the man that is described in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, a horrible picture of the total unworthiness of an individual and the total decay that sin has brought to the core of an individual's being. So they don't understand this. They don't. And it's interesting to me that if you read the book of Romans, Paul keeps coming back to this point over and over again. You say, why does Paul keep coming back to this point of the total depravity and the total defilement that sin brings upon an individual? And the reason is, it's an idea, this idea that somehow there's something in me that can rise above it all. 
and that somehow I can resurrect my own self, it's like a myth that won't go away and doesn't die easily. It just keeps coming back over and over again. It keeps springing back up to life. It's like a weed that you have to pull over and over again until eventually you get to the roots. And so Paul keeps plucking back this assumption that people are making that is a false assumption that somehow there's something in them, some moral note that they can finally find and put forward that will be the key to open up and unlock eternity before them because it's in them. And it's not. What's in them is a depth of sin they've never begun to realize. A horror of sin they've never begun to calculate. And the only one who knows it is God Himself. So deeply entrenched is it that it required a God of love to send His own Son to come and become sin for us in order to die and bear the punishment for us. And then it requires that Son to come and live in us by the Holy Spirit so totally and completely purge out the defilement of that sin from our life. The individual who's trying to transact morally with God doesn't recognize the depth of their own sin. So if you look at this, what you can see is that this question that's being asked is being asked from somebody from outside the gospel looking in. They don't understand the gospel. They don't get it. They're still clinging to this idea that they can work for something. They can gain something. And they don't understand this idea of free grace. And then they don't understand why it has to be free. Why it has to be given in complete grace, undeserved in every way. Why it has to come to them as an expression of mercy, that mercy that withholds the judgment they deserve. They don't understand it. They can't comprehend it. They don't understand that the most important thing, eternal life, is not something that they can gain in any degree by themselves or by any degree on their own part. It's a question that reveals that they have this transactional approach to doing good, and it's a question reveals that... They fundamentally don't comprehend the exceeding sinfulness of one's sin. I might add that they don't understand the exceeding holiness and righteousness and the exacting justice of God. They don't understand these things. Now, I mentioned that this is the unbelieving person or the unsaved person who's looking from outside the gospel in it and is trying to understand it. It doesn't compute with the way they've lived their lives. They've not lived their lives in that way. They've, they've lived their whole lives trying to earn things and gain things and acquire things and somehow merit things. But I would say that this is not only a question that the unbeliever and the unsaved person might find themselves asking. It is possible that the saved and the believing person can also find themselves pondering the question as well. Why be good? Why be moral if grace exalted in the free forgiveness that God gives us? What's my incentive to being good if this is all about grace? If it's all about grace, why don't I just accept the liberty that gives me and just do whatever I want? And just say, you know, why don't I make the calculation? You know, I'll just ask Jesus to forgive my sins and I'll put salvation in my back pocket like this free pass that'll get me to heaven. And then I'll go on my merry way doing whatever I want to do and living how I want to do. And I'll calculate today, I'll sin a lot. And then tomorrow I'll pray a little bit and it'll be okay. Or today I'll sin a little and then tomorrow I'll pray a lot and it'll be okay. Whatever the balance is. These are the kind of calculations that go in an individual's life. And they'll look at these things that are coming upon them, these temptations, and they'll say, well, like, you know, it's just too big for me. I'll just give in today. I'll ask God to forgive me tomorrow. It'll be all right. They're running that equation in their mind when they do that. And I'm just telling you, when you do that, you're thinking like a person who has not discovered the gospel. You're processing sin and temptation like a person who is outside the gospel looking in, like it doesn't belong to you, instead of something that you're in that God has brought to you and transformed you with and changed you. You need to ask yourself whether that's the kind of equation and question you're asking yourself, because if it is, 
It reveals that you've not been born again. If you can make that equation over and over and over again, and you can start running a life on the basis of, I'll just live the way I want to live, and then every once in a while I'll perch myself up on God's porch and ask for forgiveness, and I'll go back and do what I want to go. And you can continue to live that over and over again, thinking that you can presume upon the gospel in that way. It's probably an indication that you're still on the outside looking into the gospel, and you don't understand. You're still, in a sense, dealing with God in a transactional way. I'll do a little sin. I'll pay off with a little bit of the provision that God's given me. I'll sin a little bit more. But my good work is I'll just keep coming back to him and get what he has to give me. And I'll go on doing my thing. And you're still transacting with God in this way. And it just reveals that, well, you might be on the outside looking into the gospel. Let's look at what the response is to a person who's in the gospel, who's been changed by the gospel, and his response to that question And his response is found in this rhetorical question in verse 2. Certainly not. God forbid it. That's how the old King James translators translate it. It's actually not how it's stated in the Greek, but that's the force they saw. God forbid it. Certainly not. May it never be. I exclude from my mind and my thinking any calculation like this. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And this rhetorical response is the response of a person who's in the gospel looking out to the temptations and the challenges of life. This is the response of a regenerate man or woman. And the question reveals the new standing that they have in Christ. Let's look at three observations. The first one is this. The regenerate person knows the great awfulness of sin. The regenerate person knows the great awfulness of sin. They know it is nothing to toy with. They're are those, you might say, who make those calculations we talked about and have put that free pass in their back pocket and made these wagers. And as I've warned you, if you continue to make that wager, you're demonstrating that maybe you're not in that born-again state because the born-again person came into this new life by discovering, first of all, the awfulness of their sin. What God did was God first showed them how sinful they were and how incapable they were of saving themselves. And God drove them that moment in a moment of repentance to the saving faith that was placed upon Christ alone. When a person comes to saving faith, what they first come to is an awakening by God's Spirit to the awfulness of their sin. You'll remember on the day of Pentecost when Peter is preaching to the crowd and he's declaring that Jesus Christ is the one who was the Messiah who came and that they had crucified their Savior, their Messiah. It says they were cut to their heart and they cried out, Men and brother, what must we do? They're immediately brought into this great conviction of sin. The Lord Jesus tells the parable of two men who went up to the temple to pray, and one was a Pharisee, and he's saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here because I tithe, and he's accounting to God all the moral transactions he's made with God in order to somehow have a right standing before God. And then Jesus said the publican or the tax collector stood afar off, couldn't even lift his head up, but just cried out, God, be merciful to me. In the Greek, the sinner. It's just me and my sin. He said, I tell you the truth, that man went away justified before God. It was his repentance and his recognition of his sin and that he had nothing himself and his crying out for the mercy and grace that God alone could give him. The Christian knows that grace alone saves us through faith alone and Christ alone, but we also know that it was our sin alone that was condemning us and driving us to a miserable end. We met sin and we recognized too that it wasn't just a stain on our resume. It wasn't like some things that were a little embarrassing to us. We began to see sin when God brought us to himself as 
what Paul describes it to be in Romans 5.12. There he says, through Adam, through one man, sin entered into the world. And the idea there is that sin invaded. It was like an invader, like an enemy. It was like this evil thing that came into the world with power and malevolent force. That's what you begin to see. It's like this alien power that's taken hold of my life and intertwined in my very being and is destroying me and corrupting me. And Paul will reveal the kind of prayer you pray when you come into repentance. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's what's happened. The born-again person has experienced by faith being set free from sin's destruction and sin's death and sin's condemnation. And they want to steer clear from it now altogether. Here's the second thing. The regenerate person is not content to be saved, but to still be sinning. He is not content to be saved, but to still be sinning. The question of verse 1 seems to suggest that there's some contentment to go on sinning as long as you're somewhat of a good person. Paul says, God forbid it. May it never be. Certainly not. And I want you to look at that verse first. Look at the second verse. Paul says, how shall we? See that we? He's looking at his life and he's looking at some radical transformation that's taken place in his life. And now his whole being, his whole attitude is that he's totally opposed to any compromise. He doesn't approach temptation or sin in any casual manner whatsoever. There's no mindset in him to accommodate it in any way. He's completely against it. And he also sees this sin as not something that he can handle. Well, you know, I can kind of get near to it and I can toy with it. I can deal with it myself and I can learn to overcome it myself. He says, how shall we who have died to sin? Look, this is not something that I came upon and I found a way to navigate around it and I found the formula so that I can live a moral life. The only way that I was able to conquer this thing is I had to die. God had to since put me to death. And the man that was so bound up in the sin that he killed that man so that a new man might rise up. And now, now that I'm free from him, why would I want to go anywhere near it or continue in it? So he says, how can I go on living in sin? Now, there's a suggestion that the Christian does sin. And he does encounter the engagement of sin. And he falls at times. But he will not consent that he will live in it. He will abide in it. He will continue in it. He is not content to be saved, but to still go on sinning. The truly born-again Christian, the regenerate man or woman, has received Christ, and in finding Him has discovered not only escape from sin's condemnation, but has in Christ discovered the means of escape from sin's power, and that is what they want above everything else. They're not content to be saved and to go on sinning. And here's the last thing. The regenerate person doesn't just have a changed attitude towards sin. And by the way, we're not going to be able to talk about this completely today. This is just a little introduction into the message next week. The regenerate person doesn't just have a changed attitude towards sin. They have a changed relationship with it. They don't have just a changed attitude towards sin. They have a changed relationship with it. The regenerate person has died to sin. He has died to it. Paul is not resting in his overcoming sin because he has a changed attitude towards sin. It's not that he's saying, how can we go on sinning who know how terrible sin is, who have been enlightened on the reality of what sin is. That's not what he's saying. He's not appealing to his knowledge or his enlightenment. He says, no, how can we go on doing this because our relationship to sin has completely changed. You know what's changed? We've died to it. Sin is like 
a matrimonial partner that we were wed to at one time, and sin didn't die, but we did. And we no longer have a relationship with sin anymore. When you are born again, when you receive Christ by faith in your Savior, you are given new life. You are born again. At that moment, you, in a sense, are granted a birth certificate. New life has begun. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Right? The Bible says. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. But at the same time that you give your life by faith in Christ, and you, in a sense, get this birth certificate, this new man you are, you also get a death certificate. The old man that was so entwined with sin that you didn't know where you ended and sin began, that man dies. So it actually says, if anyone is in Christ, old things have passed away. Everything has become new. The old has died and the new has come. Paul's saying, we're not going to continue in this because we have a new relationship with sin. We're not beholden to it. We're not in the consort with it. We're not wed to it. We have an idea that it doesn't belong to us. We don't cohabitate with it because it's no longer ours. That one who is bound to sin and and cohabitating with sin and intertwined in a relationship with sin that they were wed to by their own brokenness and sin, that one died. A new man lives here and a new spirit has been given to me and I've been made new in Jesus Christ. So, Paul says, how shall we? How shall we? How shall we go on living with that? You hear that? Now, we're going to have to go and look at this over some time because that verse 2 is actually the theme and gives us a theme for all of chapter 6. It's something that we need to explore more fully. What does this death to sin mean? When did it happen? It happened, I'll tell you this, it happened on the day that you gave your life to Jesus Christ and put your faith in Him. At that moment in time, Just as clearly as you were born anew through Jesus Christ, you died to the old man. You died to the old man. But we need to explore that and understand that better. But this is the argument that Paul is making. Let's make an application here real quickly. You're not being arrogant if having believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior and knowing that He's granted you new life through Him, you're not being arrogant to think that sin is beneath you. You're not being arrogant to think that you are, in a sense, Better than certain behaviors, right? You're a new creation in Christ. The old man who made those compromises and once bartered for a few coins of good deeds for a bite of the apple here and every once in a while, that no man no longer is the person you are. That man or that woman died when you came to Christ and you are now a new person in Jesus Christ created as Ephesians 2.10 says, for good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. You're standing in Christ to put those things, sin, beneath your feet. Remember that and keep it there. Keep the temptation and the sin and the suggestions and the insinuation of the enemy beneath your feet. He's going to come and say, ah, you're just the same person you've always been. Here's the way we've always done things in the past and let's continue to move along those ways and and here's how you made up in the past. You just gave into it and then you tried to be good for a little while. Let's get back on that equation of life. He's lying to you. Don't believe him. Put it beneath your feet. You are above these things. You are in Christ. When we were raising our children, we had this little phrase we said every once in a while. Maybe you say it in your house. Van Hoogans don't do that. Oh, yeah, your friend, you know, kids are always like, you know, my friend does this, and our friends are doing, yeah, yeah, well, they might do that, and their parents might, but that's not what Van Hoogans do. One of the ones we said was, 
Van Hoogens finish the games that we begin. Because, you know, our kids would play games, and then when they were losing, they would want to quit. And now we finish our games. I, I still look back with a little bit. I feel sad. My wife and I got one of our daughters to play Monopoly, and I think we kept her awake until like 2 in the morning because it was like, this game is going to be completed. Maybe that's not that important a law. You're a child of God. If you believe in him, he's given you new life and he's put to death the old man that you were and given you a new spirit, a spirit formed and shaped out of the very life of Jesus Christ with Christ abiding in you in complete communion with the spirit who dwells within you. And these things are beneath you. Children of God do not trifle with sin. Children of God say things like, get thee behind me, Satan. Children of God say things like, God forbid it. May it never be. That's what we do. We confront and we deal with the temptations of life with a sense that we're above it in Jesus Christ. That's not arrogant. The question that we asked at the very beginning, which of those two questions are you asking yourself? Are you saying, well, if everything's free, why don't I just continue going on sinning? Why don't I run the barter? Why don't I just be a little bit bad today and I'll pray a little bit tomorrow? That's one question. Or is the question that you're asking, God forbid it. How could I, how could I, who have died to sin, live any longer pursuing it? Important question to ask. The answer will reveal what God has done in your life. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that by faith we look to our Savior, we believe in Him, we trust in Him as the one who bore our sins. And in that moment, this This great legal transaction takes place in which you account all of our sin on him and all of his righteousness on us. And we're just before you. We're right before you as if we'd never sinned before. But we also are getting a sense that you did something more than that. When we trusted and believed in you, you took the sum total of the man that was scratching and clawing within us and working in consort with our flesh and engaged in navigating its way through uh, this world, this seeming world, trying to prove himself and gain things. You let him just die with Jesus at the cross, and at that moment you made us new people, new life, regenerate life, something to experience, something to know, something to live in, something to triumph in, something that someone, some person, some new identity with power, exultant power, power of the life that is given to us through Jesus Christ and by His Spirit. We thank you that you've justified us and made us right. You've answered all the legal claims of sin against us, but oh God, we thank you didn't stop there. You poured in your life to us. You took the life that we had before and you put it to death. Help us to remember these things. Let us live in those things. May your people be resolutely committed to living in the reality of what you've brought to us through Jesus Christ. And if this is not something you know and this is strange to you, then may you come to know it. May you come to know that and there find victory through Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.